and welcome along to Property Development Live. My name is Paul Merrick. And with me today, we have Brian Wright. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Paul. So tell me a little bit about yourself. We are accountants, a team of accountants. We've been specialists in accounts and tax and business development issues right from the very start, really. So what would you say some of the most important issues are that we should cover today on this podcast in relation to tax and accountancy for a developer or a would-be developer? Many, many people today are using pensions for investment into various construction and property development projects. We can have a chat about that. The next one might be the actual business structure. Should you operate as a limited company or should you operate as a sole trader? One of the ways that you can fund a development, and it's becoming very popular in the last few years, is using a SIP or a SAS. In other words, using your pension. Let me put a proviso in before me or Brian speak about this. Neither of us can give you clear advice on this because neither of us are qualified by the FCA to give advice on pensions. So what we will talk about during pensions is I will talk about my own experience and what Brian will talk about is his experience with his clients. We are not giving pension advice and it's very clear that you understand that. And it's very clear that you understand that because one of the things you want to do is find the right person to give you pension advice. But having said all of that, I don't think we can, in the current climate, can talk about property without talking about a SIP or a SAS, as it's becoming more popular every day. So, Brian, give me an overview of your experience from your client's point of view of how they've used SIPs and how they've used SASs and how useful that can be. Many, many people have a pension fund from the resisting employer or from many employers which has built up over the years. And in its current form, the only way it can grow or otherwise is according to what's, what the markets are prescribing. So if the markets go up, your pension goes up. But it only goes up according to the marketplace, by and large. Now, you could have a pension with an active pension manager, and these guys are looking at your pension regularly and are looking at much better opportunity to invest. And, and yes, these pensions can grow quicker. But for the average person, their pension is whatever their pension is based on a general fund. For those that want to develop the fund or for those who want to get into property, one of the the better ways to do that is to take the fund that's there and use it to maximise their investment in their property. Now, you should be aware that there are a bunch of rules around these. And as Paul says, we're not experts, but the rules primarily are around using the pension for unauthorised purposes, such as residential properties. That's the big one. However, when it comes to commercial development and commercial properties, there are no real restrictions that I'm aware of. So what you might want to do is take the pension fund you have, an employment fund, a government fund, and take the money out. Again, you have to take advice to make sure it's the right thing for you to do. And you put it into either a SIP, uh, or a SAS. SIP stands for uh, Self-Invested Pension Plan. And the SAS stands for Small Self-Administered Scheme. And it's fair to say that the rules around SASs are more flexible. But the one thing to remember is in both cases, uh, they are pension funds and they are restricted to a degree one way or another. Now, typically, a SIP is a private pension 
owned by an individual. And by dint of the rules, a SAS is a pension fund that is sponsored by an employer. That is to say a limited company. And there are lots of issues around that. The legislation is says one thing, but it's certainly not clear. So we have a number of clients who have taken money out of their old funds or collected all their funds together and put them in either a SIP, if they're doing it in their own name, or into a SAS, if they're doing it through the auspices of a sponsoring employer. And then they use those, mon those monies productively either to lend to a third party, and there are less restrictions if you lend to a third party, or to lend to a company over which you have control or a controlling interest. There are slightly more restrictions on that. So that's a general roundup of the rules and how people are using these pots of money, which they previously couldn't get access to, to use for property development and property conversion purposes. And I think one of the key things to talk about there is the opportunities within, say, commercial property for a SAS in particular. Commercial property, you can buy a commercial property in a SAS and you can either then, staying within the rules of the FCA, convert that to a residential property or you can keep it as a commercial property and rent it out. Now, the latter is fairly simple and fairly straightforward. Your pension buys the property, you then let the property out, property go back into the pension. You can, if you want to, have a management fee in there so you can take some money out of it on a week-to-week -week basis. None of this is easy, but that part is fairly straightforward. So that's the simple way to use your SIP or SAS. However, once you start to do that and intend to convert it into a residential property, that becomes much more complex. It's a much greyer area, and what you will get is conflicting advice, even from professional advisors. That's absolutely correct. So let's talk a little bit about what your view is on that, Brian. Again, like you, Paul, I've heard so many stories and so many different opinions about this. My understanding is that SIPs or SASs, which are pension funds, can buy tranches of land because these are non-specific. They're not residential. They're not commercial. So at that point, you're fine. I think where the difference in professional advice lies is the point at which a nondescript piece of land becomes something that is considered to be residential. Now, our own tax specialists, and, and although we are tax specialists, nobody can ever know everything, but our own tax specialist has had a look at that with us and has suggested that once the decision to put the utilities in for a property that is to be residential, at that point you made the decision that the end result will be residential. And at that point, it cannot be within a SIP or a SAS. So the question then is, is it at the point at which you make the decision? Is it at the point at which you dig the spade into the ground to start to put the utilities in? Is it at the point you have actually put the utilities in or is it at some other point at which the point the property then becomes uh, habitable? Again, these are all the different things I have heard. Because it's grey, we won't know. The only time we learn the truth about these things is at the point where HMRC tests them within a tribunal. And for the majority of us, going to a tribunal is not an option. It can cost between fifteen and £30,000 
in professional fees to get to a tribunal even to defend your case. So if you don't have deep pockets, my suggestion is, and, and I'm not the most cautious person in the world, but I am a, a, an accountant who has to understand that a degree of caution is important. If you're, if you're gung-ho, by all means, you go as far as you think you can push it. If you're cautious, then I would suggest that the point at which you make a decision and or stick your spade in the ground or have a contractor do it for you is the point at which you have to make the decision. Can this still be any SIP or SAS? Or do I need to put this out into another ownership in order for things to progress from there? I think it can be much simpler than that. And the view that I always take when I'm discussing this with people, whilst not giving advice on it, is if you buy that property that is a commercial property that you intend to turn into a residential property, inside of a company and your SAS lends to that company, that is a much simpler exercise where you don't have to worry nearly as much about the point at which it has become residential. So it's a little bit belt and braces. It will limit the amount of funds that you can put into it. However, if you want to be 100% safe that you are not breaking HMRC rules, then buy it in a limited company and have your SAS lend to the company. In that scenario, in my understanding and experience, while not giving tax advice, in that scenario, you do not have to worry about the point that it becomes residential. I think you're right, Paul. And I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend you go and get advice and get advice from people who, I would get more than one set of advice on this one because there's so many conflicting rules. Um, I have heard rules that where the company is a connected party, there are potentially issues. So if you have the, if the, if the employer, employing sponsoring employer um, sets up a SAS, for example, and that SAS then lends money back to the limited company, and the limited company then invests in something that becomes residential, I have heard from some quarters that that, that is something that needs to be properly managed because you are effectively controlling the investment that's coming from the pension fund and there are certain clauses that I have seen with my limited knowledge about it that would imply that in that case, if it's not handled in the right way, you might still be uh, contravening some of the rules. Again, as you quite rightly said, Paul, it is so vague, so grey. The definitions that they have within the legislation is simply not interpreted. And one other thing I would say as well, and that is that there are other rules that come into play that people might not be aware about, aware of, for example. So if it's a, a investment company, then the investment company is entitled to have deductions for certain management expenses. And that may include putting money into a pension. If it's a limited company, there are certain corporation tax reliefs for putting things into a pension. If that doesn't, it's not affected if you're coming from your personal pension and putting that into a SAS or a SIP. But again, there are so many sets of rules that come into play from so many different pieces of legislation that it becomes hugely complex. And I can't emphasise strongly enough that get advice from a a, a specialist pension advisor and possibly even more than one. Addressing your point of more than one, because there's certainly pension advisors out there who are very high profile at the moment, who I personally, having lots of experience with um, SASs over the years, disagree with what they say. 
what I would say in that is, that's my opinion and that's their opinion. But if you're going to deal with your own sip or your own sass, remember, no matter how much advice you get, ultimately the HMRC will not come after the person who gave you the advice. They will come after you. So there's there's a belief system out there um, that I come across quite a lot with newbie developers, or to be more fair, people new to business, that if my expert, my accountant, my solicitor, my pension advisor told me this, then I can do it and nothing will come back on me. Let's be very clear at this point, and you be very clear as an accountant, that no matter what advice you get from any professional, ultimately, particularly when it comes to SIPs and SASs, I would argue when it comes to your personal tax or your business tax, that you are liable. Yes, a really important point, and it's likely that the advisor will step out of the equation or won't even be there at the point where they come to review because remember that the HMRC has at least six years that they can go back. If they think there's any funny business, they can actually go back 20 years. So you need to be careful. So let's not put people off the idea of using a SIP or a SAS because it is a fantastic way to use your pension money and you can make huge returns within your pension. Remember that rather than that money going to a lender at 12, 14, 16%, it can come back to you. And, you know, ultimately you can pay the rate of interest back to your pension that you choose to pay because if you're the commercial organisation borrowing the money and you're the pension, then essentially you can decide what rate of interest you pay as long as it relates to the open market. Now, certainly out there in development funding, people are paying between 12 and 20% in development funding costs. If you could put back into your pension in the open market value between 12 and 20%, that is a great return in your pension and builds your pension up. So whilst both myself and Brian are telling you to be very careful around this and get very good advice and check out as much as you can yourself, remember, while both me and Brian can be critics of HMRC, they do have some very good phone lines where you can phone up and ask for clear advice. And that advice is recorded. You can record it and they will record it and you can come back later and say, This is the advice I got when I phoned HMRC. So to round that up, using your pension correctly can be fantastic in terms of helping your development career and can be great for your pension. But it comes with a health warning. Make sure you get it right. What would you say, Brian? No, I couldn't put it better myself, Paul. I think it's a fantastic vehicle, especially if you consider your pension isn't delivering or performing for you anyway. And this is your new route, is property development. I can't think of a better way to prime your uh, business in order to get this thing up and running. So it's a good vehicle, provided you get the correct advice and you act accordingly. And of course, you don't leave yourself without sufficient cash flow to do what you need to do. So let's tackle another subject, which is that you need paid from your property development. I mean, ultimately... I'm a passion builder, so I build properties because I love to build people's homes because I love the experience of building a workplace where people work in and create jobs. I'm a passion builder, but I like to get paid for my passion. And what I love about property is you get both. You get the opportunity to build people's homes. You get the opportunity to build workplaces because we do 
commercial properties as well, you get the opportunity to create employment. But you also get paid for it. As the Americans would say, it is indeed a win-win. But how do you get paid? Let's tackle the subject of how you get paid. Do you go for a straightforward pay-y-e from your company? Do you look at taking the profit as your payment? Or do you do a combination of both? So what's your view on that, Brian? It's a very complicated subject generally, Paul, as you've pointed out. But I think the starting point for me is to go back and say, what is a business? What's it all about? Now, there's a great book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, in which he goes through the, the, the purposes of a business. And the purpose of a business, in fact, is to generate income, first and foremost. Many people get into business thinking that's their new job. When you start a business, you should already have your exit routes. And that's widely known amongst entrepreneurial circles. So where's this business going to go? One, you're either going to sell it at the end of the development in this case, or you're going to keep it running and it's going to be an income generator for you and a bunch of employees. Depending on your picture of what the end result's to be, it could be a one, one of these or a combination of these factors. So number one, it could be payroll, as you said, Paul, or it could be dividends. You should be aware that a dividend is a payment to a shareholder. In a sense, it has nothing to do with the business. It only has to do with those who have invested the risk money in the business. So, for example, we have shares in Santander, and I have no interest in running the business. I will probably never be invited to be involved in running the business, but every year we get dividends. Now, even though the, the business that you're running is a small business, the same principles apply. So as a shareholder, as a risk taker, your dividends is a return for the risk that you have taken to get the business running and continue to run. On the other hand, if you're an executive, that's to say you're an officer or director of the company or an employee, then you deserve to be paid for the time and the effort that you expend from day to day, week to week, month to month in that business. So for me, there's a clear dichotomy between rewards for investment and rewards for effort. That's the starting point. If you're going to be getting involved in the business, absolutely. When you're, again, back to when you do your cash flow and profit forecasts, you should be incorporating within these forecasts a sensible salary or a sensible wage. And what that is quite often isn't a function of what you do. In small businesses, it's certainly not a function of what you do. It's more a function of what the business can realistically afford. So as the CEO or managing director of your business, you might be working seven days a week, 16 hours a day, and I can promise you, you will never get a reward for doing that within a small business, ever. But you might consider it reasonable to pay yourself 30,000, pounds by way of a wage or salary. And that would be proper because you are putting your time and effort on a daily basis into making that business run and succeed. On the other hand, you've put your money in. You've started a business. You've, you've taken some risk. And to the extent to which the business is capable of generating a profit, and when we talk about dividends, we are specifically talking about a limited company, then you should be entitled, if there's profit, have a return from your risk money and that's where dividends come in. And do you tend to give your clients straightforward advice on that or would you say 
that you take their individual circumstances, their individual tax situation, and give them advice according to who they are and what their circumstances are. I think that's the only way you can do it, Paul, because some people are in uh, development businesses but also have a job and are highly paid or highest taxpayers. They're over the, the £43,000-ish mark in Scotland or £50,000 mark in England, and they're over £150,000 uh, generally in the UK. So these are either... 45, 46% taxpayers or 40, 41% taxpayers, depending on your jurisdiction. So in that case, you would be giving them advice that's different to somebody whose current earnings were, say, 20, 30,000 pounds outside of their business. You also have people where the only thing they're going to be doing going forward is that business. So again, you're going to look probably in that case for a balance between salary and dividend. It is bespoke. It has to be bespoke because the interaction between uh, PAYE income tax and the national insurance contributions, the tax upon dividends and corporation tax is sufficiently complex that you can't give an overall one-size-fits-all answer to that. And it's one of the issues I have with social media. While social media is a great thing and you can get some wonderful advice on social media and you can get some indications and directions of where your business should be going and what you should be doing with it. And I hope we do that here on Property Development Live. We, we show real developers doing a real development in real time. We're not here to say that one size fits all. And if you start looking at social media and there are, there's a guru out there giving you a piece of advice that you should always have a limited company or that you should always be a sole trader or that you should always take dividends or that you should always take salary. Look that person up and down and say, thank you for your advice, but it doesn't suit me. How do you know that? Because they don't know you. Your accountant must know you, your circumstances, exactly your position. Whilst social media is great and we are part of it here on Property Development Live, we do not believe in any part of this that is one size fits all. There is your size. And you find your size by looking at all the different people and listening to all the different people. And in the particular situation of how to form your company or form your business, you sit down with an accountant very early and you discuss your long-term plans. Not your short-term plans, not this development, but your long-term plans. And a good accountant will help you build a long-term business. I'd like to thank Brian for taking part, and I'm sure we'll be speaking to Brian again over the course of the next year. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for inviting me.